For 29 years, I got to be a social studies teacher, and quite a few of those years, I got to teach government. And so when I started thinking about what I would talk about the day after the election for the chapel, I naturally gravitated a little bit toward what the scripture has to say about government. So that's what I would like to look at with you today. Uh, the title of what I'm going to talk about is Dual Citizenship. Dual citizenship. And I'm right in there with Gordon on what he said as he was praying there that uh, the election results, I mean, obviously I made this, I, I thought about this message before the results were in last night. <laughs> I was thinking about it before then for sure. And in some ways, it's exciting to me that the uh, Republican platform has won over the Democratic platform because the the platforms are, are clearly different, uh, regardless of the Clinton and Trump furor. <laughs> and we know for sure that uh, turmoil is not over in the United States because of the victory of the Republicans. There will be more turmoil, and that's okay. That's to be expected. But as believers, we have some... God-given responsibilities, regardless of who's in charge of the government. The government is not our savior. We know that. <laughs> the government is not the one who will bring righteousness to the earth. Jesus Christ is that person. So there's some things the government cannot do. But there are at least four clear statements in Scripture as to what we as Christians should do in terms of our interactions with the government. I'd like to start with that because our first citizenship is our citizenship that we were born into as a result of being born in the United States or being born to people who are American citizens. And even if you're not an American citizen and you're sitting here listening today, the international students, you have these same responsibilities to your government, whether it's China or South Korea or Vietnam or Thailand or Japan or any of the countries that any of our international students come from. And I'm going to go over these four pretty quickly because the, the main part that I want to talk about today is our second citizenship, which is actually the more important one. So first citizenship because of our physical birth is the country in which we were born. And the first responsibility we have, and I don't think there's any actual hierarchy to these in terms of their order of importance, but the one I'll talk about first is 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And Gordon referred to that in, the, in his prayer as well. And that is that we should pray for our leaders. It says there, Prayers and petitions, entreaties and supplications should be made on behalf of all men, especially to the kings and the ones in authority. That way may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. So the reason we pray for our leaders is so that we will have the opportunity to live a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. That's the focus of the prayer, that that would be true. 
And Paul is saying to Timothy that that should be prayed for in churches in the midst of a corrupt, wicked government called the Roman Empire. So how much more true would it be for us today in the countries that we live in? But that's the goal, the tranquil and quiet life and godliness and dignity. So at least during these past eight years, I've been praying for President Obama six times a week, every week. I don't get to run anymore because I can't do it. I wish I could, but I get to walk. And the advantage of walking over praying is that walking over running is that you can pray when you walk. I never did figure out how to pray when I was running. I had to focus on being able to run. <laughs> but when you're walking, you can pray. And so I have had that opportunity to pray for President Obama and the way that he governs. Now I'll have the opportunity to pray for President Trump and how he governs. So either way, we pray for the leader. The second responsibility we have to our government as a result of our citizenship in whatever country we live, live in is in Romans 13. And actually, there's quite a few other things in Romans 13. I'm just going to pick one of those. Romans 13, 7 says that we are supposed to pay our taxes. <laughs> We're supposed to be honest in how we pay our taxes. I know we have a huge deficit approaching $20 trillion, I think, now, and that's too bad. But one of the problems in our country has been and always has been and probably always will be the ability to be honest about our taxes. The last number I know of is back when I was teaching government every year at Lincoln Christian in the 1980s, and that's a long time ago. But in the 1980s, the estimation was that $100 billion a year was not coming to the government because people were dishonest about their tax returns. And you can go back and forth in your mind all day about that, I think. You can say, well, the government's going to waste my money, so I'm going to try to get this as low as I can, and if it takes a little bit of dishonesty, well, maybe that's okay. Uh, but that's not okay for a Christian. <laughs> it's not okay for us. So when you get into that category, when you start making money, and some of you already are, make sure that you're honest about how much you give to the government. Even if the government wastes it, that's not the part that's on our shoulders. The part that's on our shoulders is to do what the Bible says. <laughs> and the Bible says to pay your taxes. Even Jesus, remember that one time that the Pharisees tried to trick him and said, uh, should we pay our taxes to Caesar or should we not pay our taxes to Caesar? And Jesus' answer was pretty clear. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And taxes belong to Caesar. So I hope you'll grow up that way to be honest and righteous in the way you fill out your tax returns. I'm not even sure my dad was a Christian. But one of the best things I learned from him that has helped me in my life is to be honest be honest, especially about my taxes. <laughs> so that's our second responsibility in terms of being a citizen of the countries that we're citizens of. 
Third, and here again, there's a lot of, the, a lot of different um, imperatives in this passage, but 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, has a number of different ideas in it, just the same way that Romans 13 does. And I'm not going to read all of that. I'm saving the reading for the second citizenship. But 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 starts this way. Uh, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as those sent by him to rule, to govern. So we're supposed to be submissive to the government. We're supposed to subject ourselves to the government. That whole context in 1 Peter goes through several things. It starts with being submissive to our, the, our employers, the people we work for. And the second thing is to be submissive to the government. And the third thing is for wives to be submissive to their husbands when you get over into chapter 3. But the whole context there of that First Peter section in chapter 2 and 3 is the idea of being willing to come underneath somebody else in the name of Christ. And for us as believers, that coming under, to rank under, is what the word submissive means. It's actually a military term. The military doesn't work if the private won't obey the general. <laughs> it doesn't work. So there, have to be, there has to be submissiveness in the ranking of the military. In the same way, there needs to be submissiveness to Christians, to the government in which they are. And again, <laughs> Peter's writing this in the midst of a government which crucified him. If tradition has it right, he was crucified upside down. You probably know that. And yet he was saying, be submissive to that evil, wicked Roman government. We are not living under that kind of a government. Whether the Democrats or the Republicans rule, it's not like the Roman Empire. So be submissive. Another word that's in that passage is to honor the government. And I like the middle verse. I will quote this one. Verse 15, out of those five verses, that's the one that's right in the middle of that. And it says, For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So it's the will of God. As far as I am aware, and I won't go through all those verses right now, but in the Bible, there are only four clear statements when it says, this is the will of God. And this is one of those four. And it says, the will of God is to do right in your relationship with the government. That is a high priority for God, that a Christian would be willing to do what the Bible says to do about the government. To honor the government, to be submissive to the government. And number three, this one's another tough one, and we see, I'm, I'm sorry to say, violations to this every day. <laughs> and our news media is probably the biggest offender, and I hope you will not be an offender <laughs> in this category. But Paul said this when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. Apparently, his weakness may have been poor eyesight because he said something about 
the leader of the Sanhedrin, and it was a negative thing that he said. And then one of the other people standing there that was like a policeman struck Paul and said, do you speak evil of a ruler? And Paul, in the midst of that, you can look it up in Acts 23 if you want to see the whole story, but in verse 5, he apologized. He said, I was wrong because I should not speak evil of a ruler. How many times do we hear on the talk radio shows people speaking evil of President Obama, if you happen to be a Republican like I am, or the reverse, <laughs> the other side speaking evil of the other side, <laughs> the Republicans. We are violating that every day in our country. It's against what God has to say. Paul apologized for doing it wrong. We had to apologize and stop. <laughs> we had to stop speaking evil of a ruler of our country. We should not do that. Honor the king. In this case, the president. There is one more idea that I'll give you that is also true. And so it's kind of a fifth one. <laughs> but those are the four main ones that I, we just went through. But there is a fifth one. In Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles, when the Sanhedrin said, you can't talk about Christ anymore. You can't do that. <laughs> and Paul's answer, or I'm sorry, Paul wasn't on the scene yet. Peter's answer to lead the apostles was, you know the verse, I'll bet, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So there are times, there are times when a Christian has to say, I'm sorry, God's calling is a higher calling, so I will obey God rather than men. So in the midst of those four that we just talked about, the praying, the paying taxes, the submitting, the honoring, the not speaking evil of a rule or ruler, there is an exception. In that case, it was an exception because the Sanhedrin, the ruling political and religious leader of the Jews, that body of 70 men said, you can't talk about Christ anymore. And Peter and the apostles said, sorry about that, we're talking. <laughs> And they continue to, and we can be glad for that because we're part of the result of that, that the gospel is still being spread through the Gentile world today. So that's our first citizenship. I think our second citizenship is ultimately more important. Well, I don't think that. I know that from the scriptures. But that's our citizenship that we have in heaven. And that is our second citizenship because... Our first citizenship happens when we're born physically. Our second citizenship happens when we're born spiritually. So some of you in here may be citizens of heaven. In fact, I would assume most of you. And then there may be some who are not citizens of heaven yet. <laughs> and I'll bet you know the verse, or I hope you do. It's a great verse. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our second citizenship, being citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20, and that started 
the day you were born again. So for me, I became a citizen of heaven on January 12th, 1975. So I've been a citizen of heaven for a little bit of time, but not nearly as long as I would have been a citizen of the United States. That happened on May 7th, 1947. But there are two times there when you become citizens, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> citizens of the earthly country in which you were born, and then, by God's grace, citizens of heaven, when God, through his grace, helps you understand the gospel and you believe the gospel. So what about this citizenship? And we have great things to look forward to. I want you to turn with me now to Psalm chapter 2. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. The book of Psalms has many, I don't know how many, but it's a, it's a high percent of the, of the book of Psalms, what are called Messianic Psalms. Messianic means that they have reference to Jesus Christ, even though it's Old Testament. And particularly out of those Messianic Psalms, there are 12 of those Psalms that are called Royal Messianic Psalms. And royal messianic psalms have to do with Jesus' leadership or kingship on this earth during a time period that we call the millennium. Now, there's some different views about that millennium that uh, true Christians can have. Uh, I think the one that you hear most often and the one that I would hold to is that there actually is going to be 1,000 years that are going to be real time, real life, uh, not just some sort of pie in the sky by and by, but a real life thing where everybody that's a true Christian will be there. So I hope that's all or, or at least most of you, <laughs> where Jesus Christ will be reigning and ruling from the city of Jerusalem, and that will be the world's capital city. Everything else will pale in comparison to Jerusalem. That'll be the place where all the tension is directed. No elections, no campaigns, no term limits, a thousand years of Christ ruling. And Psalm 2 is talking about that rule. It's talking about it from both sides of it, from the process of getting that rule set up, which we would call the tribulation, seven years of destruction and misery on the earth, and then the actual setting up of that millennial kingdom. By the way, Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament ten times. <laughs> the psalm is pretty important in the New Testament. Ten different times in the New Testament, Psalm 2 is quoted. And I'm just going to work through this. I'm not going to say a lot about each verse, but we're going to look at each verse to see what this reign of Jesus Christ and what our part in that is through his reign. So here we go in Psalm 2. And by the way, it breaks down real easy. Brennan asked me for a good outline today, and I said, hey, this is going to be easy, Brennan, because there's four key ideas in Psalm 12, or Psalm 2, and there's 12 verses in Psalm 2. And each idea has three verses. So there's four paragraphs of three verses each. Paragraph number one. 
And the title I gave for paragraph number one is The Nations, and you could substitute the word Gentiles there, The Nations Against God, verses one through three. So I'll read those three verses and then talk about each one a little bit. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And that is what's basically, if you wanted to boil all of Revelation down to one thing, especially chapters 4 through 19, where the tribulation is being talked about, it's the nations of the world trying to fight against God. That's what the tribulation is about. So verse 1 is saying that the reason the nations are in uproar is because they are proud. They're devising a vain thing, it says in verse 1. And vanity, another synonym for that, is the word pride. And we've got a problem in the United States. <laughs> it's called pride. <laughs> we have pride in our country because... We're the number one nation in the world. And I don't mind the idea of honoring our country for what we stand for. But when we start making our pride in our country the main thing, that's not good anymore. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Nebuchadnezzar found that out in a real way. He had to eat grass for seven years. I wouldn't have wanted to have done that. But he was too proud and God brought him down. And if we as a nation ever get to the point where pride in our nation is the main thing, and we don't rank that underneath God, as, if Christians, if we do that, that's, that's not right. That's, that's bad. That's against Scripture. It's a vain thing to have that pride. And number verse 2 there is talking about what they're doing. The kings of the earth, and this is future in its fullness, but it's now in terms of what is happening in some nations in the world where they're going against godliness, against what Scripture says. And you could even put the United States into that. <laughs> We're not doing everything right, are we? <laughs> We're not even close. <laughs> But the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And I wanted to bring out that word anointed just a little bit. The Hebrew word there is actually a word that we just brought across into English. And we use the word Messiah. I don't know how to spell it in Hebrew, but it's almost exactly that same spelling. M-E-S-S-I-A-H. The word Messiah is just brought across from the Hebrew language. And the New Testament word that's the equivalent of Messiah is Christ. So the Messiah is the Christ, the long-awaited-for, expected one that the Jews are still waiting for. The Christians know that he came the first time when he was born in a manger. So that is who the kings of the earth are standing against and taking counsel together. If you wanted to try to 
put an agency in there <laughs> to show what that looks like today, you could just say the United Nations. The United Nations is not a godly organization. Their positions are against God, and we're part of that. And someday, the United Nations will become an organization that is fully worldwide in scope and will be fully against God. That will be during the tribulation. And look at what those nations are saying. We don't want to do what God says anymore. We're going to tear their fetters apart. Their fetters meaning the Lord and his anointed and cast away their cords from us. And some people look at Christianity like that. I think it's too bad, but it's kind of a confining thing. There's things you've got to do and there's things you can't do and that puts you in a box and you want to get free from that. So let's get rid of that. And I understand that a little bit because I wasn't a Christian for 27 years. But Christianity, outside looking in, looks confining. We know that if we've truly trusted, trusted Christ, it's not confining at all. It's freeing because we're in right relationship with the God of the universe. But a non-believer doesn't get that. That doesn't make any sense. That's all what the hippies were about. And I was a hippie for a while, not a true hippie every way, but uh, got the long hair, did the hitchhiking. I got to do that part. But uh, I remember that. We, we wanted to get rid of all these confining things. We just wanted to be free and do whatever we wanted to do. So hitchhike out around the world and waste your life. <laughs> so I did a little bit of that. But that's not godliness, and that's certainly going against the Lord and his anointed. So that's the first idea. The first idea is the nations are going against God. And remember, the other word for the nations in the Old Testament is Gentiles. That's every one of us in this room. I don't think there's a Jewish person here. <laughs> but that's what is happening in the end times in a bigger way. Four through six gives us God's responses to the nations. And these may surprise you a little bit. It's always been one of those verses in the Bible. Verse four in chapter two has always been an interesting verse to me. If you've got your Bible open, you'll see why I think that. It's not the way we normally think about God. But here's what it says. He who sits in the heavens, that's God, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So normally we don't think of God as laughing at somebody and scoffing at somebody. Normally we actually say that those are bad things to do. I don't want to scoff at somebody or laugh at somebody in a derisive way. But I think God is saying those words on purpose because he knows that these nations, what, what hope does a nation have in going against God? And maybe you know Isaiah 40, 15. That's the comparison of God to the nations. God says the nations, and it doesn't matter whether you're the Haiti of the world, which is probably the poorest country in the world, or the United States, the richest country in the world. The nations to God are a drop in a bucket. 
How big is a drop in a bucket? Not very big. How big is God? He's really big. So when God sees the nation in an uproar, the nation's in an uproar and saying, we're going to get rid of you, God. We don't want this anymore. We don't want this confining part. In that moment, God laughs and scoffs and says, you guys got to get this right. (laughs) You're a drop. (laughs) I'm the whole thing. I'm more than the bucket. (laughs) I'm bigger than the bucket. You're just a little tiny drop. And I, I w- if we could get that kind of a thinking into our national DNA as a nation, that we could remember that no matter if we're the world's leader or not, that God sees us as a drop, we might have some humility in our country instead of pride. And that would be a very good thing for the United States of America. If we could remember that we are a drop. <laughs> That's the way God sees us. And he laughs and scoffs when we don't get that right. Because it's wrong to think of ourselves as more than we are, regardless of how powerful we are. Verse 5, he goes from laughing and scoffing to a much stronger statement in verse 5. Then he will speak to them, those nations, in his anger and terrify them in his fury. I, I cannot imagine how terrifying it would be. That's when I became a Christian, actually. I watched a movie called Thief in the Night that was about that, well, it was about the rapture and then the second coming of Christ. And it was terrifying to me. I thought, what would it be like to be on the wrong side of Christ when he shows up? <laughs> it would be a terrifying thing to know that you were going against the person who created the universe, that somehow you thought that was okay in your mind, deluded mind. (laughs) But that is going to come very clear during the tribulation, that God's anger and fury will be against those nations. And then he says this in verse 6, As for me, I already have my king. I already know who's king. And I put him as king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Some verses make it sound like the highest mountain in the world in the end times will be in Jerusalem. And the temple that will be there then, the millennial temple, will be on top of that mountain. I don't know if we can be that specific, but there are indicators in the Old Testament that that will be true. It won't be Mount Everest anymore. It'll be... The mountain in Jerusalem, Zion is Jerusalem, and it will be the chief of mountains. Micah 5 says that, but it'll be interesting to see what that's like. We'll get to see it. We'll get to be there, but Jesus is already the king. He's already been elected, and it only took one vote. (laughs) All it took was God's vote. I've already got my king. He's ready to go. He's going to be king in Jerusalem. Okay, third set, verses 7 through 9. This is Christ talking, the Son's declaration. His first declaration is this. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, those are both capitals, God the Father said to me, God the Son. I hope your Bible has it that way with a capital M there for the me. It's talking about Jesus Christ. 
It's not talking about a regular person. Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. That begotten word is used in the New Testament three times. It refers to the resurrection of Christ. Begotten doesn't mean like Jesus was born as a baby. Begotten. Paul in his first sermon in Acts 13.33 clearly identifies that word begotten as connected to the resurrection of Christ. So it's his resurrection that was his triumph over the enemy and ultimately his reign and rule during the millennium. So God installed Christ in verse 7 and Jesus knows it. And then verse 8, Jesus says, I've got an inheritance, and my inheritance is the nations. So if you wanted to look at that, the United States is part of Christ's inheritance. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. So Christ owns the nations. He rules over the nations. And then how he does it, this is the part that I think will look very interesting for us because it's not going to be the meek and gentle lamb of God. It's going to be the lion of Judah who is ruling and reigning. It's going to be a much different Jesus Christ than we think of when we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This Jesus Christ, read verse 9, follow with me. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Jesus Christ's rule is going to be a rod of iron. For us as his people, we're going to help him rule. That won't seem so hard to deal with. But for anybody who tries to go against Christ's rule, it will be a rod of iron. It will be a strong rule with swift justice uh, that will probably include capital punishment. I don't know how everybody voted on that this time. We'll, I don't know what the results of that are yet. But it will be swift and true and just. It will be righteous from Jesus Christ. i got to give you the picture when he comes. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Revelation 19, 11 through 13. Anybody that thinks of Jesus Christ simply as a little baby in a manger will have to wake up to a reality in Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire. If you can imagine looking at Jesus Christ's eyes and seeing a flame of fire, and I saw his eyes as a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. We don't, we don't get that picture of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we do get that picture of Jesus Christ when he comes again. And then the next verse, verse 14 in chapter 19, says he has an army. Guess who's the army is? <laughs> it's us. We're the army. The bride of Christ is the army. We're still dressed up like we were at the wedding feast. It says we were dressed in white linen 
I hope they're not dresses. I don't want to wear a dress, but um, the bride of Christ, I'll do what Christ puts me in. <laughs> It'll be a good thing, right? Guys, we can handle it. But uh, we're going to be on white horses. We're coming behind. We're with Christ, leading the charge as we come down from heaven. And then it says in verse 15 that he's going to set up a rule on this earth, which he is going to rule with a rod. You're not going to be surprised, are you? Rod of iron, right out of Psalm 2. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. If you ever want to be excited about the second coming, please read Revelation 19. It's a tremendous passage. The only part is I don't like horses, but maybe I'll be okay. Dress and a white horse, maybe somehow I can do that. So that's the rule. And then the final part, and I'll finish here pretty quick, but there's exhortations. There's actually, it calls a warnings here to the rulers. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, verse 10. Take warning, O judges of the earth. And there's four ideas quickly in these last two verses. Worship the Lord with reverence. I wish they'd use the King James Version word there because that is the Hebrew word. It's the word fear. It's more than reverence. So the first warning is worship the Lord with fear. And then rejoice with trembling. You can even get the idea of that fear idea in the trembling word. That's the first two warnings. And then the second two warnings are the idea that there is no middle ground here. You're either going to be on one side or the other side. And the first side is the one you don't want to be on because that involves God's wrath. King James actually says, kiss the sun. I got to give you this quick because I never kissed a girl until I got in college. So if you guys are like me, that might not have happened yet. And that was a scary moment for me when it did happen. <laughs> but at any rate, kiss the sun doesn't mean like we think about kiss. Kiss the sun is actually the Greek word for phileo, the brotherly love. It's a, it's a kiss of relationship. That's what it is. It's not the kiss of girlfriend, boyfriend. <laughs> it's the kiss of relationship. And it says you should kiss the son because you need that relationship. Otherwise, you're gonna, he's going to be angry and you're going to perish for his wrath may soon be kindled. You don't want to be in the verse, verse 12 first part, but it ends on a great note. And this is for all of us who are true believers in Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So taking refuge in Christ is what keeps us from the negative side of his eyes being a flame of fire and coming to rule with a rod of iron. And I trust that all of you have put your trust in Christ. <laughs> this to close. Regardless of our earthly leaders, and now we're going to be able to say President Trump, at least in January, when he actually... And you guys know this from government class. We didn't really elect the president yesterday. I think that this year, it's December 19th. 
when all the electoral college gets together and the votes are counted by the Congress and then the actual election takes place. And then the installation, the inauguration happens in January. But earthly leaders, regardless of who they are, our hope is not in those earthly leaders. Our hope is in Christ, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. And your e-groups, that would be my question for you to interact with. How does our hope in Christ rule and reign in the future affect your life, my life, as a Christian today? How does our hope in the future reign of Christ affect my life as a Christian today, November 9th, 2016? Let me pray. Father, we are thankful, as Gordon prayed earlier, for your sovereign hand over our, our elections. I'm personally thankful for the Republican platform winning, which has to do with at least more things that are godly things. And I do pray for wisdom for those new leaders that have been elected as we make this transition over the next couple months that they will follow what the platform says. But regardless of that, I do thank you that your reign and rule is secure, that nothing changed from yesterday. You're still king. You will always be king. And I thank you that that will be very evident during the millennium when Christ is on this earth in physical form, in a physical place in Jerusalem, and that we will see that rule and reign, and that we actually... All of us who are true believers in Christ will get to enjoy that reign together with you and actually to help you. We look forward to that with great expectation. We pray for wisdom for us and what that looks like today as believers in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.